Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it actually occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium and annual Battlefield bus tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series published by Savas Beatty Press. Right now, we have seven titles out with more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative that includes self-guided tours of the battlefields of many of the major campaigns of the revolution from South Carolina to Massachusetts. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you would like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. This is Kevin Pollack with Emerging Revolutionary War, and thank you for joining us for our latest uh, Rev War Revelry here on Sunday nights on our Facebook page and also on our YouTube channel as well. And I'm excited to be joined this evening by Professor James R. Fichter, who's an Associate Professor of European and American Studies at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, James is the author of two books, So Great a Profit, How the East Indies Trade Transformed Anglo-American Capitalism, and most recently, or I believe coming out in December, uh, is his latest book, T, Consumption, Politics, and Revolution, 1773 to 1776. So, James, how are you doing this evening? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm doing wonderfully. Very good. Well, we're, we're very excited to have you, of course. We're ramping up all of our programming, as is everybody, it seems, to be prepared for the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, which is something you've written about quite extensively uh, as well. So... I wanted to go ahead and, and get right into it, really, and see if you could set the stage for us about what exactly is it about tea that becomes such a central piece to the story of colonial America, the British Empire, and the American Revolution as well. Um, you know, uh, you know, in a way, it uh, the answer is that it doesn't. Um, there's nothing about tea that necessarily makes it this way. The story could easily have been about something else. Many other consumer goods were just as important, like coffee. Um, but it actually, it's about the um, tax structure, the imperial structure as a whole, the duties, uh, the East India Company. All of these intersect in a special way that allows tea to be marked politically and legally and uh, in term ideologically and emotionally for people in a way that other commodities aren't. So uh tea is imported by the english east india company into britain uh, it is also imported by the dutch east india company uh by the swedish and many others into those european countries uh and the import the tea imported from britain uh to imported into britain is then re-exported to the north american colonies but 
The Dutch tea and the Swedish and the French tea are all shipped to North America and the Caribbean as well uh, in large amounts. Uh, and it's funny the way that tea takes on a symbolic value, this representation of uh, the symbol of uh, parliamentary taxation and regulation. Um, some people start to create stories of it being crammed down colonists' throats. Uh, but of course, this is fictitious. Um, but the weird thing about it, right, is when you start to think about how people were so invested in the, in, for example, getting um, what uh, John Adams called honestly smuggled Dutch tea as opposed to uh, legally imported and woefully dutied uh, English tea is is that the ideological explanation for why one kind of tea should be better than the other should have some sort of moral or political valence it's completely um, completely pulled out of uh, thin air. Uh, both East India companies were monopolies. Uh, both East India companies uh, were um, monopoly, chartered monopolies in which the parliament that created them or the legislatures that created them gave colonists no say. So there was, uh, and both uh, re imported and re-exported tea to North America in which there was some marginal vestigial level of taxation on both teas. So there was taxation without representation in the Dutch tea as much as the British, although Maybe colonists didn't know that. I'm not sure. This could have been, I'm not sure whether that's a proof of good marketing or just that, uh, as always, we, um, we're ideologically prone to see what's convenient. Sounds like that might be a new research project for you, huh, in terms of looking mm. into uh, maybe some of the advertising with the, the tea and whatnot um, as well. So um, I've been looking through your book. I was really impressed, you know, sometimes authors can crank out books very quickly, but you said this book had taken you 15 years oh. to put together. Uh, that says it all right there, your expression of that. So tell us a little bit um, about, I'm kind of interested in the research you did for the book and how working and living in Hong Kong, did that delay the process at all or mm. make it more difficult for doing some of the research that uh, you you have for this book? That's an interesting question. The, the book began, you know, when you're uh, the book began as an article project that was supposed to come out around the time my first book came out. The idea was to do a short article that looked at tea advertising in the American Revolution. And I thought, well, I could use these Redex uh, Newsbank uh, archives of newspapers to sort of just full text search for tea and adverts and then try to figure out how the advertising sort of came and went and how this is a way to measure boycotts more precisely than we've been doing. Because I noticed that when we talked about the boycotts, um, we just sort of vaguely said boycotts were happening. But we, we weren't very precise about exactly when did it happen and exactly where and how long did it last and why did it end? And those specific questions never really got a lot of attention in part because before the formal Continental Association boycott began on December 1st, 17. Uh, 74, tea was already supposed to sort of be boycotted previously, and it was in some places, but not in others. And so most people didn't, weren't really fussed about getting down to brass tacks about that. So I thought, well, this is something I can do. It'll be a small article. Um, and the, the amount of data that I found was just so massive. Um, just uh, hundreds of advertisers and thousands of advertisements for tea. 
many in most of these in the year after the Boston Tea Party and in the year after the ships, tea ships from the East India Company went to New York and to Philadelphia and to Charleston. And when tea was supposed to be largely not a thing throughout 1774, I th thought, well, it, it'll be like already pretty much boycott. Oh, no. And certainly not in New York and Philadelphia, the two biggest market towns. It was widespread. Um, and so it just started getting me thinking, hey, you know, I can be specific about this in other ways. So let me interlibrary loan this uh, old fashioned microfilm reel of stuff that's not on the Redex uh, material yet. They they were adding stuff, but I was I was moving faster than they were. Um, or uh, when I'm on a trip to the US, I'll, I'll pop over to you know, Colonial Williamsburg and I'll look at this or the Virginia Gazettes weren't included yet. So I'll, I'll look at them separately on their website. And I just slowly started adding. And along the way, it kept on um, snowballing. Uh, you know, readers' reports on the article always said, well, you can't talk about tea without talking about uh, gender and and sex, uh, or you can't talk about tea without talking about merchants. You can't talk about tea or tea advertising without talking about uh, uh, this other issue. And it kept on snowballing. I had a 25,000-word article, and that was not... Uh, that was not going to get published. And I realized I had to admit to myself that it was a book and then slowly uh, redesign it, redesign it into being a proper book and move on from there. Those are all how all uh, good projects start, it seems. And it's really neat to have seen you use newspapers. I think, you know, that's becoming not that it was an untapped resource previously, but with the digitization, like you said, especially online and being able to keyword search uh, these newspapers, it, it's really been I've seen that in a lot of different history fields beyond just the American Revolution of using those newspapers as sources in a way that's never really been done before. So that's neat that you were able to uh, to adapt that ultimately. Uh, so you talked about the Continental Association. You mentioned it briefly in their ban on tea that started in early December 1774. Uh, so I guess we're kind of jumping around here, not chronologically. I do want to get to the Tea Party specifically itself because I think you have some really uh, neat finds about that. But uh, since you mentioned it, let's go ahead and Tell us a little bit about the Continental Association, um, what it was, and it's the efforts that it, it tried to impose uh, with the T-ban itself, and why ultimately that T-ban was a failure. Yeah, the association is an amazing document. Um, I still don't know what it was, uh, because I think, you know, I, uh, I don't know what it was, because I don't know what the Congress that created it was. Um, Continental Congress was not meant to be sort of a lawmaking body, but it ended up kind of becoming one. And the Continental Association is the pseudo law or crypto constitution or whatever that it creates. Um, but setting the question of association aside, it's funny if you look at what a Congress was, what the, the noun Congress was in 1774, it did not mean a legislature. It did not mean a representative body. It meant something more like um, an assembly, like you might remember, or a gathering, like the Vienna Congress or something in 1815, right? It meant more like that. Uh, there were there were previous Congresses meetings, the Stamp Act Congress and uh, Albany Congress in earlier decades, but they had been sort of uh, advisory meetings of different state legislatures representatives. They didn't it didn't become an institution that would then, as would be, particularly with the Second Continental Congress, would be a legislature, would command an army, would then, you know, form treaties and deal with tax revenue issues. 
That was never the case. Um, and in 1774, there were no Congresses. Um, none of that is none of the co um, colonies had Congresses. They had assemblies, or um, a house that had houses of burgesses or other institutions, but but they didn't have Congresses. So Congress was this sort of weird word that they used because they didn't know what to call it. So they called it a Congress deliberately to leave it vague. Convention, which would be the other word, lots of provinces and, and colonies would have conventions in 74 and 75. Sometimes they would call these conventions Congresses. Convention became the synonym sort of fudge word that would let them, let it be all things to all people. And, um, you know, the funny thing is the other convention is um, the convention parliaments when um, they got rid of the king uh, and when they replaced uh, whatever they replaced uh, the Stuart House of Stuart uh, uh, with William and Mary, a convention parliament would be sort of an illegal, officially, formally not sanctioned meeting of the members of parliament to fix some sort of problem with the constitution. And then they go away and they come back as regular parliamentarians and the constitutional order proceeds. And I think on some level, that's what Congress was supposed to do. And that's what the association was supposed to fix. Um, it was a boycott structure. Um, and it said, we will boycott uh, imports from Britain, exports to Britain. Uh, we will boycott some, uh, we boycott exports to the Caribbean colonies and some imports from there, but not all. Uh, and also said that we will not consume goods from Britain and we will boycott tea and not consume tea. It also boycott the slave trade. Um, which I think is probably best understood as a way to put pressure on British merchants uh, as much of the association was designed with the import and export boycotts to basically pressure the British merchants who were then supposed to pressure Parliament on the colony's behalf. This was sort of seen as how it was supposed to work. But the whole structure was weird. Um, it's sometimes seen as like the first attempt to make an American system like um, the, the tariff system that would later exist and be debated in the 19th century. Um, but it, its structure was odd because uh, it delayed uh, non-important and non-export for so long that the effect was delayed. And this meant that, for example, uh, people expected non-importation to begin. And so they spent 1774 pre-ordering as much stuff as they could to stock up. Uh, merchants pre-ordered in, colonial merchants pre-ordered, and then their local customers pre-ordered with them. And so mm -hmm. imports from Britain in 1774 were 15, 30% higher than they had been in previous years. So this isn't exactly going to send a shot over the bow of the merchants. In fact, orders were so high, some merchants thought they had to have a boycott just so that they could like get rid of the stuff they had on hand. They couldn't afford to keep trade open because they wouldn't they would they wouldn't be able to move their their inventory. So um it's a little bit fuzzy about how it worked. And then in the end, what it really did was it it gave people symbolic means to demonstrate their common cause. Um the the preeminent means before the boycott was to send aid to Boston right, to send aid to Boston from your town or some sort of non, or even like a, 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 you know, a guild or something could send aid to Boston. And then the thank you note would be dutifully sent from Boston and the local patriotic newspaper would carefully reprint it and publicize everything that people are doing together. And this became the new way to do that, to say, oh, yes, we don't consume these goods and to make a public show of not consuming. But 
there's a gap between when you join a boycott and you make this public rhetoric of like, I'm not going to consume these goods. I'm boycotting those people over there because they're bad for some reason. And actually doing it in private, those two become very different things. And so you can make a big mouthy protest over here about how you're burning your tea and bring tea out from your cupboard and burn it and then still have some at home to carefully drink when no one's looking. And this is both hypocritical and totally normal. What we expect people to do all the time. And so that it, it doesn't make sense to come down too hard on colonists for this, but it does make sense to remember that they're only human. And this sort of a, the boycott, the word boycott hadn't even been invented yet. So they were, uh, they were feeling their way through this. And also the boycott had no end date, no terminal uh, point at which it was supposed to end. I was expected it would end when all the demands were met was sort of the idea, but uh, it kind of fell apart and we don't notice that it fell apart because the war that quickly came after the boycott smokescreened that collapse. So we don't notice it collapsing. Yeah. And you, you talk about that in, in your book, how the, um, the, the war, like you said, almost saved the, this, this movement in a way of, of reuniting or not reuniting, but further uniting um the colonies uh ultimately and uh, i want to i want to rewind a bit before we get sort of to that with the end and, and talk a little bit about the tea party itself um because you have some very valuable stuff you know it's always been of course the tea party is a huge piece of american history yes. certainly uh that's why we're all going to boston for the 250th anniversary of the boston tea party because it is this this critical piece of american history uh you know john adams uh, calls it an epoch in our history um, but there's a lot more to the story of the Tea Party than just tea being thrown into Boston Harbor and destroyed. And, and some of the things that you've found uh, that I thought were quite interesting is that not all of the tea was ultimately um, destroyed. So I wonder if you could share uh, about that and, and just how that relates to the, the Tea Party itself and then ultimately the, the Continental uh, Association's bans on tea. Mm. So the, the Tea Party, I think it's best to understand that the the Tea Party that we know today is an artifact of a lot of, um, I cannot tell a lie, I, I did cut down that cherry tree level narration. I mean, not always by Parson Weems, but that kind of stuff along the way. And so there is... Um, there's a Johnny Tremaine version of the Boston Tea Party that's still in my head from when I was a kid, and I can't get rid of it. It's never going to go away. I think it's in every a lot of Americans' heads. And um, most of that is completely wrong. Um, it's maybe more useful to think of the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Patriots who did it as... Um, the analogy is probably better to having, you know, uh, think of various political movements around the world that have a paramilitary, illegal underground wing and have the respectable, polite, will negotiate with the British over Northern Ireland wing. And these, these two sides uh, work hand in glove. And John Adams was on the respectable, polite side. Um, and the not respectable, not polite side was the side that did the Boston Tea Party. But they also screwed it up because they they didn't get all the tea. There were four tea ships. They destroyed three. Um, and the fourth ship, they knew that they missed it. The, the news 
that the William, which brought the fourth cargo of tea, uh, wrecked on Cape Cod, uh, wrecked on the 11th of December, and then uh, news reached Boston by the 15th that its cargo had been saved. And so on the 16th, when the Boston Tea Party happens that morning, uh, I think it's the Massachusetts Gazette runs the news that this cargo has been saved. And so at least the organizers of the Boston Tea Party knew or would have known, presumably if you're organizing the Boston Tea Party that day, you check the newspapers, uh, uh, you know, you'd, you'd have noticed, oh, ooh, we didn't get, we're not going to be able to get it all. But all the more reason to destroy the tea, to send a message to Cape Codders that they, to do their last bit and to get that last cargo. So the, there then becomes this need to sort of, to make the Tea Party look successful and to hide what happened. And so the tea that is rescued from Cape Cod is carefully salvaged and brought to Castle William on Castle Island, about two miles uh, into Boston Harbor or out from the uh, uh, Boston port in the harbor uh, over next to Dorchester. And there, there it sits throughout 1774. And we know that we've always known that it was brought to Castle William and that's usually where the story ends. But what I discovered was that it was then sold um, that the English East India Company records in 1775 that the cargo was sold, that um, uh, they receive a letter dated August 9th, I think, telling them, oh, uh, it was sold. Um, they get about a thousand pounds sterling that they book for the proceeds from the sale. Well, that means that the tea was there the whole time before. That means throughout the first half of 1775 and for all of 1774, the tea is sitting in Boston Harbor ready to be sold with agents who sell it because in august of 75 the agents who sell it are the remaining boston consignees who are still in town i'm not sure which one some had already left obviously governor hutchinson had left uh, and one of his sons had left with him uh, but some of the consignees uh, were still there they sold it on behalf of the whole um, and so the threat of that sale was sort of looming over boston throughout 1774 and that was a dangerous threat because, you know, uh, Boston was full of cheaters and people who had cheated on the boycott in 1770. They were so famous for cheating on the boycott, right, that John Maine's uh, uh, publishing in 1770 of all the patriots who'd brought in dutied English tea, right, was uh, he printed this list of just people who had done it and copied and transcribed out from the customs house ledgers. And this was incredibly embarrassing. Uh, for which patriots carefully ran him out of business uh, because you can't you can't let the other side get equal airtime if you're trying to win a revolution and, and revolutions aren't made by consensus so they they hound him out and but there is this need to not let this tea get sold because all of that duty tea that was being brought in in 1770 had buyers, had consumers. And if this last cargo of East India Company tea got sold in Boston, here's Boston, this heroic example of the Boston Tea Party on the one hand. Oh, but if this gets sold, then it shows that the reason they had to destroy the tea was because if they actually just boycott it, it wouldn't have worked and people would have drank it. Uh, it would have made Bostonians look bad uh, when then after Congress or after Parliament passes the Boston Port Act, right, and the Coercive Acts, and it's coming down hard on Boston, uh, if the tea is sold then, and in fact, the Boston Port Act requires that the tea be sold implicitly, it says that commerce must run smoothly. Well, that means that this tea would have to be allowed to be sold. And 
uh, this this would mean that any intercolonial response to the Port Act, any emerging continental boycott, any congressional uh, uh, gathering would be undermined by Boston suddenly caving in and selling the last East India Company tea, right? It would very much uh, hurt the cause. So this last cargo of tea just disappears. There's a few newspaper references to it when it lands, and then suddenly it's like not there, and no one mentions it again for a year and a half. Um, so it's this sort of implied, but it's sort of, but it's known and it's uh, there. And of course, there's a second cargo of tea that survives too, uh, sent to Charleston. Um, and between the cargo of tea that's sent to Charleston, which survives, and the cargo that's sent to Boston, almost as much tea, 80,000 pounds, is sold as is drunk, so or as is destroyed. So um, actually, uh, the East India Company didn't do too bad in that from that light. It wasn't that off, at least, in terms of its assessment of who would drink tea. And, and how effective were some of these other, quote-unquote, tea parties that were had uh, throughout the colonies? You mentioned Charleston. Um, as well, but there were other instances of, of protests against landing tea throughout the colonies as well. Um, and I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit for us, because again, obviously Boston gets the focus of this story, but it, it is so much more than just a Boston story, ultimately. That's right. So there's maybe uh, between a dozen uh, to as many as 20 of these little tea parties that happen. Uh, the Boston Tea Party wasn't called that at the time. Which is called the destruction of the tea. That the Boston Tea Party itself was very divisive. People saw it as a overreach, overly violent. Some people loved it, like John Adams, you mentioned. Sometimes these divisions were across normal political lines, right? The uh, Parliament, the uh, colonial treasurer in Massachusetts thought that the Tea Party was literally diabolical. Um, so the literally the work of Satan. George Washington also didn't like it, although he was not going to go. Like, quite go that far and say it was a satanic act, but uh, he disapproved um, as a well-to-do property owner as well he could, right? Um, but those, those divisions about the Boston Tea Party, one of the, the things that happens with it is just in the short space between the, um, between the Tea Party itself and independence, there are several ways of re-remembering of what that memory of what that moment was just in those two and a half years so that there isn't um, a clear version of what's going on that stays consistent over that time. Um, the, so that once the once Parliament passes the Coercive Acts, suddenly colonists who were apprehensive about the Tea Party for being political overreach or excessively violent change their minds and they think, well, this is I may not like this, but Parliament's worse. So I'm I'm back on I'm back on team patriotism now. And uh it pushes a lot of people to forget whatever uh, reservations they have and copycat tea parties occur throughout the colonies almost uh almost all of them occur after news of the Port Act and the other coercive acts reach uh, North America, and they are to sort of protest the Port Act and the Coercive Acts and to express fellow feeling and fellow cause with Boston uh, and to rally people locally. So there are there's a little tea party uh, in um, New Jersey, for example, in December of 17, uh, Cohasi, New Jersey, um, in December, uh, December of 1774. Um, a lot of these are less than they seem, like the New Jersey one. Uh, one guy was known as uh, his last name. His name was Henry Stacks, and he was known to go there and steal as much tea as he could 
from the tea burning. And so they called him tea stacks for the stacks of tea that he he took. And it was like, a, it was a running joke in town that this is what he did. Uh, but of course he did. Like, why would we expect, you know, how many Americans, uh, how many American servicemen who served in World War II wanted to get a German Luger if they could get their hands on it? That wasn't, it was a trophy, right? And 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 that trophy taking doesn't didn't undermine the meaning of what they were doing in the war. Um, it was just and so. Likewise with this, right? So I'll take a trophy. I'll take a piece myself. Um, and so lots of people did that. But in this case, it does start to undermine the meaning because if the meaning is I won't consume this, but then people go and just to nick it. Um, that starts to change it. Some tea parties didn't happen at all. They were they've been invented. Uh, in subsequent years, um, there's one in Maryland that's uh, in Chestertown, Maryland, that's completely made up. Um, uh, but it's lovely, and uh, everyone should get out in, in period costume and enjoy themselves anyway. But it's uh, nothing happened. Um, and uh, some of the other tea parties, like those in Philadelphia and New York, right, they chase the tea ships off. There's not really any destruction of the East India Company tea in those cases. It's, yeah, it's really just a... a well, what we've known, I guess, a propaganda tool ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, and this is something I, you know, have have not admittedly looked into much, but where does the name of Boston Tea Party ultimately come from? I know it wasn't used at the time, but who who really coins the phrase of that? I think Al Young talks about this a bit. Um, it comes out in the 1820s and 1830s, and it's part of these sort of uh, wave of remembering as the last Revolutionary War veterans are dying and writing their memoirs, people are interviewing them. Uh, and, and of course, calling it that is a way to canonize the event. Um, in in But in that kind of lighthearted, just having lads, just having some fun kind of a of a way, right? It, it, it's the Boston Tea Party. Um, whereas the Boston Massacre is similarly you know, remembered a certain way and given certain name choices. But mm-hmm. I mean, killing five people is not really a massacre anymore these days, I have to say. Yes, so right. Yeah, exactly. And a choice in, in, in both cases, right? To right, right. Light or heavy it, as needed. And it worked, obviously. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that's for sure. So um, you talk about in, in the introduction to your book and, and a few other of the articles that you've written of tea really morphing from becoming, from being a symbol of the British state to being a symbol of American consumerism, mm-hmm. um, ultimately. I wonder if, if you could touch on that a bit more and really expand on that. Don't don't ask, you know, I'm not asking you to recite your whole book, uh, certainly, but, but talk a little bit more about that, if you will. Yeah, so the, there is, what's the point of a boycott? Uh, because on, on some level, these boycotts, you know, once the movement towards independence gained steam once the colonies declare independence, then suddenly achieving equal access to the Atlantic marketplace, that in many ways was the core of what the the entire imperial crisis was about, getting a fair or equal shake at, at commerce and trade and taxation and so forth. And so tea becomes a consumer good that like many other consumer goods that Americans can afford to buy and choose to buy uh, because in the years after independence, 
because they can and because this is the point of being in the Atlantic marketplace is you get to buy all the great stuff you want to buy. Life is still rather nasty, brutish and short, even in the 18th century, but at least there's more consumer goods options to salve and assuage uh, that lifetime that you have. So if it's not tea, it's coffee, it's sugar, it's chocolate. Um, it's all sorts of other consumer goods. Um, and so being able to access that becomes vital. Um, and it's worth noting that Congress ends the, uh, relinquishes its prohibition on tea about two months before it declares independence, uh, two and a half months before. And it, it does this wisely because it realizes that keeping people from, keeping colonists and Americans from consuming consumer goods isn't adding to their freedom. It isn't creating happiness. Uh, it has no value except for as a political totem. And at this point, whether you join the militia or whether you pay your taxes to King or Congress matters a lot more as a political totem. Um, so tea instead gets repurposed again as part of the consumer world that Americans are part of. Very good. And and you talked about, too, you know, that colonists, you, you touched on a little bit as well, when colonists sort of, quote unquote, stop drinking tea uh, in 1775, once the battles of Lexington and Concord take place. Was that more out of revolutionary fervor for the for the cause itself or because uh, non-consumption of tea was sort of imposed on them by patriots within the colonies? Yeah, the um, there's. There are definitely people who chose to not consume out of revolutionary fervor. Some people claim they didn't consume tea for the rest of their lives because of this reason. Um, and of course, you know, there are people who today choose not to consume tea for religious reasons, for whatever reason they choose, right? Um, so that's perfectly reasonable. There'd be some subset of the population that's like that. And then, of course, there would be some subset of the population that would also feel like, well, we we're going to do whatever we feel like doing and you don't get to tell us how to live our lives um and you know get off my back and that subset would be there too um the 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 real question is for the at the middle which would probably be a very broad middle uh of the population what do they do and it seems like there is not a lot of serious enforcement action um the patriot leadership not congress really because congress says in the association that all of the enforcement will be done locally you guys figure it out we don't like you know conditions in connecticut and, and south carolina are too different we're not going to have anything to say about this so local committees at the, the parish level or the county level or the town level whatever the local arrangement is in that colony enforce it and they almost never go door to door checking to see that people actually boycotted not just tea but the whole ray of British consumer goods, right? They almost never go door to door. They go door to door asking people to sign a slip of paper that says, I promise not to consume these goods. And, and colonists are like, yeah, totally. I see my, my neighbor's name is on this list and my other neighbor, he'll see that my name is on this list. So I better sign. Everyone signs, but they don't, hmm. you know, it's not actually enforced. Now, the great patriot officials do enforce it a little more closely on merchants. They look more closely at merchants' ledgers and merchants' books, but even there, I was able to go in 250 years later and find plenty of merchant books that booked thousands of tea transactions during the prohibition when you'd think there'd be a good reason not to keep a written record. 
So, and it makes you wonder how many other transactions were not recorded and were just left under the table. Um, and so I think, yeah, this was a, this was a serious case of, you know, for, for want of a better uh, modern expression of don't ask, don't tell, um, mm -hmm. that everyone agreed that they would boycott tea, boycott tea on paper. And then in reality, they would do what they felt like. Yeah. What, what you do behind closed doors is almost your own, your own business, essentially. Yeah. Almost, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so since we're approaching the, the 250th anniversary of, of the Boston Tea Party and coming up to the, you know, the anniversary of the start of the Revolutionary War itself, how should we view the Tea Party 250 years later? How do you think it should be viewed and interpreted, um, you know, all these, these decades later? With, with a lot of changing interpretations and newer information, such as what you found about the Tea Party itself and about the story of tea and consumption in the American colonies in the lead up to the revolution itself? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, I think um, it, it's useful to remember that the Boston Tea Party is by definition not representative. It's not the one perfect example of how all the tea was dealt with. It is the outlier in terms of how colonists responded to East India Company tea in 73. It is the outlier in terms of how colonists responded to tea in general at that time. Uh, and it's the outlier over a longer array of time. The idea of destroying tea in, in part of some symbolic protest, that whole movement is an outlier from a general period, general window of consumerism that would last from the early 1770s, then have a blip, and then would last from by 1776 on into the present. So I think it's worth thinking, realizing that, in realizing that, you know, political legitimacy has a lot of roots, but one root, potential root to political legitimacy is, you know, the way you let your people have, have their livelihood. And the war, uh was a threat to that the it was there was the potential for the patriots war and for the boycott movement that preceded it and for the money printing that patriots engaged in especially by 1777 onward to be economically devastating in ways that would undermine the common man or common woman's support for revolution but patriots allowed not they didn't just allow tea to be consumed again they allowed colonists to consume goods from Britain in wartime. And this provided a way to let people continue, even if a little bit, even if in part, to continue accessing the colonial market, the Atlantic marketplace. And then who was to blame if you couldn't access the Atlantic marketplace? It wasn't the Patriots, we're letting you do it. It was the British Navy that was the problem. It was these horrible, parliament and there's this awful uh, british army that's the problem it's not us and so by positioning the the hardships that colonists were, were uh, enduring as something imposed upon them by britain um this prevented the boycott movement which was self-imposed hardship especially if it started to last year after year um from being something in which patriots would be potentially just immiserating colonists ad nauseum year after year. This would hardly be 
a way in the long term to get anyone excited. Oh, great. We all get to make our own socks by hand forever. That's great. In the middle of the first industrial revolution, we all have to make our own socks. And for why again? Like that, that's not going to sell, right? So it's it, it's worth sort of taking a pause on that and on the whole way we think about homespun and uh, the, the sort of homemade movement that comes out around there. Hmm. I, I like the term you use when thinking about that as an outlier and you're absolutely right. Um, but you know, of course many people, hopefully thousands of people will be descending on Boston, uh, in, yeah. in December of this year to, to go and talk about and learn more about that, that outlier itself as well. Uh, and I know we'll, we'll be there and I think you will be as well, uh, absolutely. Up in Boston for the anniversary, which is, is pretty neat. Uh, so I, I'm going to give you time, uh, in a, just a moment to make a pitch for anything in the book that we didn't cover at all that you want to talk mm -hmm. about. But I'm always curious. You've got two books out now. Is there a third book? Uh, any projects that you're working on lately? Oh, there's lots of projects I'm working on. Uh, <laughs> they I never end, do they? Yeah, I have a book on the Suez Canal I've been working on for some time. Uh, it actually predates this book uh, and as a project, but that's uh, not even a U.S. history. It's a British imperial history. Uh, and uh, that's well along. But I'm actually sort of the Continental Association has been inspiring me in a lot of ways. I've been thinking about articles I might want to work on, on um, prices and the association or on the slave trade and the association. These also seem, these both seem like fruitful avenues to sort of dig in a bit more. Um, I did discover, uh, I, I found in working on this project, uh, I found ways in which often the association could be weaponized within a colony to have a different political structure than we might assume. So I was very struck by in Virginia, um, where the association was basically used as a way to pull uh, merchants, both based in Virginia and in Britain, into supporting uh, the, the larger cause of the revolution. So they um, they banned imports first and they banned exports to Britain about 10 months later. And th this meant that the planters were still sending exports to Britain and not receiving anything in turn. And of course, the planters were wildly in debt. So they were paying down debt to their lenders for without receiving any new goods in return. And so this is actually not at all beneficial to the planters to pay off debt just before they go to war, right? It makes more sense to rack up debt and then abrogate uh, uh, the debts, but they don't. They expect to continue trading with London merchants on into the future. They're not expecting a political rupture, let alone an economic one. And though the political rupture happens, the economic one doesn't really happen or rather it, it closes uh, and trade resumes after the war. So they they pay down their debts with London merchants and they're expecting to, to resume that trade as soon as possible. And so it made me realize that here's a way in which this is the, the offer of planters to pay off their outstanding debts becomes a way to get London merchants to help support them by not sending goods to Virginia to help support non-importation. Um, and so this becomes a, we usually think about the other way around, right? That the planters are making profit by jacking up, getting the price of tobacco to go up and selling at a great profit, but it's actually the reverse. They're just paying off more of their debts when they do this. Um, and this has made me start to think, wonder how if we should rethink other elements of the association as well in the way that it 
the economical economic reality and especially the day-to-day -day business reality could be very different than it looks on paper. Well, that would be very interesting. I'm glad you had said, you know, earlier in our discussion of you weren't really sure what the Continental Association was, and and I'm glad you said yeah. that because I wasn't quite sure either, uh, <laughs> and, and still aren't. So I, I hope that uh, your work will be able to shed some more light on that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a fascinating document. Mm -hmm. So, anything else that we didn't get to cover this evening that you want to say about your book or any other projects or just the the Tea Party uh, in general? Uh, at all. I'm going to do a, a good pitch for your book because I think this is going to be a valuable piece of uh, the, telling the story of, of tea uh, in America and the American Revolution, but I want to give you an open floor. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I you mentioned one word that stuck to mind, and that was propaganda. There's a way that this word is a bit um, impolite uh, mm -hmm. to use in talking about the American Revolution. And it, it to me, it's very odd that it's impolite because um, Napoleon Bonaparte, rough contemporary to the American Revolution, had no problem with propaganda. He had no problem using it. He had no problem calling it that. This was a normal thing for him. And in fact, propaganda is a kind of a normal thing for all politicians in all time to do. Their audience would vary, of course, but just uh, telling, telling, saying what's convenient and not necessarily what's true or pitching it in a certain way in order to, to advance your political agenda is politics 101. And there is a way that when we want to talk about the American Revolution, you know, we've had for the last six decades, we've had a wonderful movement talking about ideas and the intellectual origins of the American Revolution. And that's very valuable. But, you know, not everything people say is intellectual or true or sincere. Um, and so it's worth remembering that a lot of times people are making stuff up, lying, cheating, and stealing in order to advance their cause politically, uh, and that this is normal. We look at if we look at um, Congress today, uh, they don't seem that much worse than Aaron Burr. Um, so that that tells me that these kind of that this is this is kind of normal, um, and that people will do these things and especially the newspaper editors from the 1770s tended to be kind of slimy uh they tended to slant the news hide the news uh as they needed to that's not that different from today either but what it does mean is that uh, we have to take newspapers with a much bigger grain of salt than we do um i think the truest thing in the newspapers are the advertisements everything else is a different shade of slightly cooked information um, from this period. Uh, but um, if we sort of read with an open mind toward the possibility that there's propaganda, that stuff's made up, uh, that stuff's being hidden, uh, or that stuff's being massaged in a certain way, this is actually, a, we can be very enlightened in our reading of the newspapers. But as long as we're reading newspapers like their literal reporting of the truth by eyewitnesses uh, and not these sort of that the news in most newspapers is probably more akin to a present day op-ed. Um, then I, I, I think we're going to run into trouble. I think you said a lot there. That is absolutely right. And and I find that too, in studying history that most people seem to think that newspapers back then simply just reported on the news and did not have an opinion at all. Um, you know, and they, a lot of people think that's opposite as to what uh, news media does today, but I would, 
definitely agree with you. I mean, you read those newspapers back then, and they certainly had opinions uh, that that they were pushing. Yeah. Um, and, and I never never thought of, you know, usually I'll admit when I go through old newspapers and I look at the advertisements, I just kind of breeze through those. But yeah, you, you have, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. You you've used those a lot, I know, in your work, and uh, so that's been eye opening to me as well uh, to to go ahead and take a look at that. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think if you read a newspaper and you're not familiar with the context, you have no basis upon which to start to interrogate and go, wait, that's not exactly, no. You have, why would you interrogate? You have no basis. So you end up, it all looks, you suddenly it's, you're back in Johnny Tremaine land without even realizing it. I like that, Johnny Tremaine land. That's good. Well, we'll, we'll be back up there for uh, in, in Johnny Tremaine land soon enough with the- uh, mm. The story of the Tea Party coming up, of course, the anniversary coming up uh, in December. Uh, I know that we'll have a few folks from Emerging Revolutionary War up there. And uh, oh, so maybe we'll, we'll run into you up there as well uh, in oh, Boston. My so I look forward to that. Um, so again, folks, uh, uh, make sure you're going to want to make sure to pick up a copy of James's book. It is called Tea, Consumption, Politics and Revolution, 1773 to 1776. It is not out yet, but we no. are close. Uh, it is coming out um, so middle of December, huh? So right around yeah. the anniversary of the Tea coming Party. Coming out the day before the Tea Party anniversary. So. Talk about good marketing there, right? Uh, yeah. Cor Cornell University Press is publishing it, and uh, I've had a chance to go through it, and uh, I think it's going to be a very valuable piece. So, James, thanks so much for doing that, and thanks for taking some time out of your, your busy schedule. I know you're working on a lot of projects, so thanks for taking some time to chat with us this evening. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. And uh, folks, if you're interested in more of our programming, you can find us online on the blog at EmergingRevolutionaryWar.org, uh, on Facebook as well, and our YouTube channel, where we have plenty of content of interviewing other authors and historians about the story of the Revolutionary War. So definitely go online and check that out. But we thank you all again for joining us this evening. Thanks again very much, James, and uh, everybody enjoy the rest of their evening.